Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, how the Liberal government is buying off the press. Emmanuel Macron takes a stand for free speech and honouring and remembering Christy Blatchford. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, everyone. Welcome along to Canada's most irreverent talk show. Another exciting edition, I hope anyway, of the program here on True North. Back in home turf after our field trip to Halifax for Omar Khadr's event at Dalhousie University. If you haven't yet heard it, I did a full postmortem and recap of that event on the previous episode of the show, and we had a lot of great stuff on there, I think. So do, like I said, try to get caught up if you haven't. But wherever you're listening, it's not a serialization, this show. You can pop in whenever you'd like, but I certainly hope you enjoy it enough to subscribe on whatever you listen on. We have Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. I think one person has requested a carrier pigeon. I think we're still working that one out, but for the most part, we try to be wherever our listeners are. So thanks everyone for the support of the program to date. I want to get to a few things on the show here, but right out of the gate, I want to show how brazen the government is at trying to buy favorable news coverage. Now, we know this is happening. It's not news in the sense of the fact that this is just absolutely shocking to us. But from the $1.3 billion that CBC gets to the $595 million journalism bailout fund to that story that we talked about last week on the show where the heritage minister, Stephen Gilbo, was committing to licensing news organizations and then backtracking, but not really... And now we have a story that is just so brazen that you have to just say, okay, if you're going to be this corrupt, at least hide it better. But thanks, I guess, for the transparency, sort of. Blacklock's Reporter, which is an Ottawa-based publication that I will say has absolutely been killing it lately, has this great story, Government Pays for Climate News. I should say, not a great story, a well-done story. Nothing about the subject matter, however, makes me happy. They found that the $50 million local journalism initiative, which is a program in the Heritage Government Department budget that is supposed to be to bolster local journalism initiatives, as the name suggests, has been co-opted to basically push the government's agenda in a lot of areas of journalism. So this program has now become a slush fund, including money paid out specifically to get media organizations to cover climate change. So this is just so ridiculous. Now, this is from Blacklock says records from the Canadian News Media Association, which is an industry led group. They found that there were organizations that pitched grant applications to the government and received money for the sole purpose of having reporters to talk about climate change. One, for example, is the Narwhal, which is based in Whitehorse. And the Narwhal wrote, no existing media outlet, be it local, regional, or national, has an environmental beat reporter covering issues in Canada's Arctic. Given the profound ecological changes underway and huge development projects for the region, this is a major gap in civic reporting. Another application came from Nunatsiak News in Nunavut, which has a reporter covering, quote, a key institution for the study of the effects of climate change on the Arctic. 
and the Winnipeg Free Press. Now, the Winnipeg Free, Free Press is the paper of record in a pretty large Canadian city, a provincial capital, and they had a, a reporter that was hired because of government funding, quote, dedicated to climate change. And they say in the grant application, quote, coverage will be balanced and include both the warnings that need to be heeded, but also new solutions that will provide hope that a greener future is still within reach. The reporter will be dedicated to climate change. The beat will include the politics, economics, cultural, social, and environmental aspects of climate change. Sorry, I fell asleep there. So they say it's going to be balanced coverage, but I want to read this part again. It will include the warnings that need to be heeded, but also new solutions that will provide hope that a greener future is still within reach. So they don't mean balance between alarmists and uh, those who are skeptical of the alarmists. They don't mean balance between these two groups. They mean balance between one side of the alarmism and the other side of the alarmism. So that's like saying, oh, you know, I prefer a balanced diet. I like uh, junk food and fried food. Or I, you know, I, I like balance. I, I like beer and wine, uh, you know, as far as things go. Well, that, that is balanced, actually. The beer and wine one is balanced, but... They say it's going to be balanced and they're going to focus on the warnings and the solutions and try to get us to a greener future within reach. Now, provide hope that a greener future is still within reach. Now, this is the kind of thing that you would expect to hear from Justin Trudeau. That's the kind of thing you would expect to hear from a politician. Oh, uh, cher ami, we must uh, uh, provide uh, hope uh, that a greener uh, future uh, is within uh, reach. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of thing you do to make Greta Thunberg happy. And now this is the mandate of a Department of Heritage grant to a private news organization, or what's supposed to be a private news organization. And by the way, the Narwhal has previously written that it is committed to, quote, tracking government commitments to climate change. And they've talked about climate activism and they've highlighted climate activists. So these are, are agenda driven examples of reporting. Now, from a free speech perspective, yes, I think that advocacy journalism has a place in Canada. Environmental advocacy is a big thing. If you want to have a, a news organization that advocates on these issues, that's fine. But you can't have government bankrolling it and not deal with the inevitable problem of government-sponsored and or government-approved journalism, which is what's going on here. And again, you know, we're talking about a $50 million program that is supposed to be about getting coverage of school board meetings, council meetings, all of these things. That's supposed to be this initiative. And the reason is that these issues are not sexy. The school board meeting in Whitecourt, Alberta, is not as salacious as uh, the crying polar bears because the ice caps are melting and all of that, which is why it's harder to find coverage of these things. So civic engagement is huge. And in an age of media consolidation, when local media is dying, there's a place to have local media that's doing these things. But now this program, which I don't agree with the program, but if you're going to do it, you need to do it on those appropriate terms and within the parameters that have been set out. Now you have people that are covering these sexy federal government approved issues, which are not local issues and getting government money to do it. So 
even though the $50 million is not a lot of money, it's the principle of the thing here because you've got government directly financing coverage that will help the government. And the reason I say that is because climate change is an issue that the liberals have tried to claim as their own. It's an issue that Justin Trudeau has gotten up and tried to say that he is the savior of the climate, and the liberals have tried to say that they're the ones that are going to heal the land, cool the oceans, rebuild the ice caps, save the baby seal, all of this stuff. That's what the liberals are trying to do. So by basically writing checks to news organizations that are covering the climate beat, or as the Winnipeg Free Press says, that are covering the solutions for the greener future to the beyond, the whatever... You're actually saying that government is able to buy favorable coverage. And this isn't to say there aren't local environmental stories across Canada. It's that this is not an issue that's ignored by the media. This is not an area that we don't have coverage. In fact, I'd say we have too much coverage of climate change from the mainstream media. I remember back in December, CBC ran a story sharing its discontent that we shelve our climate concerns when it comes time to do Christmas shopping. And CBC ran a few pieces, actually, about how Christmas is bad for the environment. And media organizations have tried to make climate change narratives uh, pivotal in anything that they're writing about. We've heard uh, stories about climate change causing this, climate change causing that. If it's cold weather, it's climate change. If it's warm weather, it's climate change. If it's in the middle, it's climate change. If it's raining, it's climate change. If there's no rain, it's climate change. The fact that they call everything climate change means that they can talk about it whenever they want. And this is what the liberals want. The liberals want Canadians to keep talking about this because it will then turn around and allow the liberals to say, well, this is our issue. We're the ones. We're here. We're doing it. And again, it's not about the dollar figure. You have to look at it as part of a pattern here. The $500 million bailout, the CBC subsidy, this talk of licensing media. The government is not respecting a free press. The government is trying to intervene and interfere in the press and basically demand favorable coverage in response. And the government's been saying all along that it's not going to have a hand in regulating content, but its actions are proving otherwise. I mean, imagine if, and I wrote this in a, a loony politics column, imagine if the previous conservative government says, we're going to fund national security reporters. We're going to fund reporters that are going to specialize in terrorism. Imagine if the conservatives said, we're going to hire firearms reporters, people that are going to talk about uh, firearms policy. Or heck, imagine if a gun magazine, and there are gun magazines in Canada that do great work, great stories. Imagine if, I think Caliber is one of them, uh, put in a grant application and said, we want a, a reporter that's going to cover firearms policy. How is that any different than an environmental publication going to the government and saying, we want money? to have a climate change reporter. They're both public policy issues. One of them favors the liberals. One of them favors the conservatives. There would be an outcry if the conservatives tried that because you can't buy coverage and expect that people aren't going to give you a little bit of pushback on it. 
So the Trudeau government is trying to manipulate the landscape of media coverage right now, and it reminds me of when Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former attorney general, had testified that Katie Telford, Justin Trudeau's chief of staff, had promised to, quote, line up all kinds of people to write op-eds, backing the decision that Trudeau wanted Jody Wilson-Raybould to make regarding SNC-Lavalin. So, you know, Katie Telford's like in the OR and the dying liberal poll numbers are on the table in front of her and she's like, get me some op-eds, stat! But this is what the liberals have been able to do. They've had these cozy, cozy relationships with media organizations where they're planting op-eds, they're buying CBC, they're handing over poutine to, I think it was David Cochran of CBC. They're doing all of these things, and the response is a liberal press. Oh, and by the way, not to mention Unifor. Unifor, the anti-conservative union, getting a place on the journalism panel that the government relies on to define who a journalist is and to define how that money is going to get doled out. So there, I mean, there are plenty of practical reasons about why the government shouldn't be bankrolling media in general. And I've talked about these with the bailout, which incidentally, I hope conservative leadership candidates will take a stronger stand against. And I know Marilyn, Marilyn Gladu has said it's gone. I think Aaron O'Toole has said it's gone as well. The bailout sets a double standard. Some industries are the old yesterday's industries, like manufacturing. Trudeau says, ah, you know what, get, get new jobs, retrain, doing the Joe Biden thing, basically, telling people to learn to code. And then you've got Trudeau saying, oh, no, no, but we need to save local media. Well, call me a cynic. Call me whatever you want. People do anyway. But when Trudeau is deciding he's going to intervene to save this particular industry when this particular industry is the one that can decide or can alter the narrative about Justin Trudeau, it seems to explain why he wants to give the media sector such preferential treatment compared to manufacturing, forestry, mining. I mean, you look at the carbon tax. The carbon tax is killing a lot of sectors in Canada. In fact, it's killing sectors that have typically been the backbone of the Canadian economy. Those jobs he doesn't care about. He cares about SNC-Lavalin jobs because, oh, they're in Quebec. He cares about media jobs. Why? Because reporters that have been given checks by the Liberal government are either going to be directly beholden to the Liberals or at the very least will allow a perception of that beholden nature to permeate among the readers. Either way, it calls into question the media reporting that happens. And when the Trudeau government is specifically sponsoring, which is what this program is doing, individual jobs to cover beats that the liberals want covered, that the liberals are legislating on, there is absolutely no way you can say this is not a gross conflict of interest, putting the word gross, I guess, as being the key word in that. But this is what's passing for good policy. This is what's passing for, for good government. It's ridiculous, and it's got to stop. We'll be back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. You know, I mentioned before government cozying up with the media sector, and I've got to say corporate cronyism is not entirely limited to the media. We had the MasterCard story from a couple of weeks ago, 
And now we've got another Canadian company that seems to be focusing on being in the liberal good books, perhaps looking for or waiting for a check of its own. This is a story that True North actually broke. TELUS is promoting liberal compliant phone plans on its website. Now, this is not, you know, I'm a firm believer in free speech, as you know. And the reason I think free speech is so important is because oftentimes, if you let people speak their mind, they tend to out themselves. And you don't need to do anything. You can just say, aha, this is what they think. And this is a scoop that comes from a very deeply hidden investigative place, the TELUS website. But uh, TELUS on its website has a new program called the True North Affordability Program, which <laughs> I don't think we have the trademark on True North, but I assure you this True North on which this show is broadcast has nothing to do with TELUS's True North Affordability Program, which is actually a little stamp, a green maple leaf with a check mark and a black wording that says True North Affordability. And that stamp is on certain phone plans that TELUS is offering. Now, what TELUS says is that the True North affordability stamp means our plans line up with the Liberal Party benchmark for wireless affordability. The page goes on. As part of their campaign, the Liberal Party pledged to make cell phone bills more affordable. It goes on. Our TELUS peace of mind plan for a family of four provides more data than the sample plans referenced by the Liberal Party. For more details, including the chart released on liberal.ca, please see the Liberal Party proposal. And then there's a link to the Liberal Party proposal. And at that link is a partisan liberal policy document from the campaign in which the liberals promised what they call more affordable cell phone bills. And that was a policy proposal that, according to this document, says the liberal government will take strong action to see cell phone bills come down by 25%, this will save a family of four almost $1,000 per year. Now, telecom in Canada is an absolute mess, and one of the reasons for this is the lack of competition that takes place in Canada. And you remember how much the big three, Bell, Telus, and Rogers, fought tooth and nail during the Harper government when there was a proposal for Verizon to enter the market. And it was so ridiculous. I was a big supporter of it because more choice means lower prices. But in the end, Verizon just said, screw it. This is not something we want to deal with. So the liberals are trying to artificially manipulate phone companies down. And when this was announced during the campaign, there was a lot of confusion as to how. And it seems to be based on them asking nicely. It's based on the liberals asking telecom companies nicely to please lower their prices and hoping that they'll comply. Now, I was skeptical when this was announced that it would actually happen. And then Navdeep Baines, who's the industry minister, had uh, written an op-ed in the National Post, or I think it was the Financial Post, actually, a couple of weeks ago. And in the op-ed, he had said that the government is working with its industry partners to doing this and getting the phone bills down. So whether you like the liberals or not, whether you're skeptical of the proposal or not, the government is trying to do this or is planning to do this. The problem with TELUS is that its website is not crediting the government of Canada. It's not saying that we're complying with forthcoming government regulations. It says we are complying with the Liberal Party. Liberal Party, Liberal Party, Liberal Party, Liberal.ca. It it's like a liberal campaign ad, basically. So TELUS is shilling for the Liberal Telecom plan. 
And this has not yet been changed. I know that we reached out to TELUS, and at the time that I record this, we have not heard back. However, what's happening here is I think the TELUS person that was contacted really misunderstood what was being asked of them. This is purely speculation on my part, but I'm guessing uh, the government went to the telecom companies and said, listen, this is what we've promised. We really need you to play ball. And Telus said, yeah, yeah, okay, if the government's going to be doing it, we'll go along with it but seemed to be mistaken for whether the government of Canada was making the request or the Liberal Party of Canada was making the request. And you may think that is a semantical distinction, but it's not. It it actually is significant because the Liberal Party is a partisan entity, the government of Canada is the state, and both of them have different implications when they start telling companies what to do and when companies start doing it. Because if TELUS, which is one of three major cell phone providers in Canada, decides to go along with it because it's a liberal proposal, well, all of a sudden you've got a multi-billion dollar corporation that is, I'll use the word I used earlier, shilling for the liberals. So now if you're a TELUS customer and you're on the TELUS website and you're looking at plans, there's a page telling you, oh, the liberals gave me this phone bill. This is the, this, this price I can afford because the liberals did it. Now, if the liberals want to tell you that, that's fine. If the liberals want to run ads saying, hey, that phone bill of yours is cheaper because of us, fine. That's what partisan entities do. But you can't have the best of both worlds. The liberals have banned companies and, well, actually the conservatives banned corporate political contributions. The liberals have uh, maintained that. But now to turn around and say, but we're going to accept this support from a corporation. Now, is this just some marketing intern that just had no idea what was happening? Or is this something more insidious? I don't know. But the point is that TELUS is actively promoting a liberal policy that isn't even law yet, that hasn't been incorporated or enshrined in the federal law to which, yes, they would have to reply. They're saying, oh yeah, we're doing this because the liberals did it and it's great and we're even going further than the liberals and they've put forward these samples and we're going along with it. And I, part of me wonders if they just want to get their own little $50 million check after MasterCard was able to cash a big one last week. So now you've got companies lining up at the trough, which is why I said corporate welfare needs to end. Because when you have government and corporations getting into bed, everyone loses in these sorts of situations. And this is an area that, I mean, shouldn't be a left-right issue. And again, I always, I, I get tired a lot of the time of the whataboutism, but it also is illuminating in some ways because you have to flip everything to see if there's consistency. You have to say, all right, well, if the conservatives had did this, what would be the response? If the liberals did this, what would be the response? And a lot of the time you expose pretty brazen hypocrisy when you do that and pose those thought experiments to people because the media response is rarely consistent, rarely consistent, if ever, on these sorts of things. It's, uh, it's, and it's not going to get better unless people call it out. I mean, you look at Bombardier, which is a company that's absolutely in the hole right now and has been and has always been a company that only exists based on subsidies. And that's probably the test case on why corporate welfare is a terrible idea. So we'll have an update on TNC.news if we get an update from TELUS, but uh, you can check out the details of that story there.
Before I, I take a break here, I, I want to mention something that has been... I, I, it's, it's a very online thing. And I realize that I'm making it more real by saying it, but I want to address it because I'm not actually hiding anything. Over the last couple of days since I got back from Halifax, I've been getting a ton of messages, tweets, Facebook things from people angry that I supposedly ignored a veteran who was protesting outside the Omar Khadr event on Monday night in Halifax at Dalhousie University. And I said on Tuesday, it was a crappy night, it was cold, it was freezing rain, I was out there for an hour and a half talking to a lot of people, and there was one particular veteran there by the name of Jeremy McKenzie, I've since learned, who I'd never heard of, and the first time I saw him in my life was Monday night, he was wearing medals, he was doing a long uh, time Facebook Live, it looked like, or a YouTube Live, but he had his phone running, he was doing commentary, he was talking to people, and he was interviewed by someone else who was covering this thing. And you may have seen the interview. The interview has been just, it's gone absolutely viral. Uh, this guy, very passionate, very angry about Omar Khadr going in, especially with him being an Afghanistan veteran himself. And the the narrative that has somehow emerged with a corner of the internet is that I ignored him and that I snubbed him in, in some way, which was certainly not the intention. The reality is I was out there at that event before anyone else was. The first veterans to arrive I interviewed because at the time I was focused on getting content and I wanted to get a cross-section of perspectives, people that were protesting Cotter, supporting Cotter, people that were unsure. And I spoke with on record, I think three veterans on record, and I chatted with a couple of others. There wasn't just the one demonstrator. There were, I'd say, maybe a dozen and a half, and many of them wearing military insignia. And I didn't know this particular veteran was the one that I needed to talk to, but everyone's telling me since that I needed to. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I don't like this idea of rushing to assume the worst, which is what a lot of people online tend to do. That seems to be the entire backbone of Twitter. But my rationale, if I'm doing streeters, which is what they're called, talking to people, interviewing various people, trying to get a cross-section, is you want to get people who whose voices are not otherwise going to be heard. This guy was doing a Facebook Live. This guy had been interviewed by someone else. I don't want to get the same coverage that everyone else is getting. So I talked to the other people there that weren't being spoken to by anyone. There's no conspiracy there. There's no concealment of anything. Uh, the fact that everyone has seen the video of this guy and is saying, why didn't you talk to him, suggests that I didn't need to. His message is already out there. So if you have heard this, I assure you there's no conspiracy. I thank everyone who serve for their service. And I, I know that sounds redundant, but in true, in true honesty, I thank those who have served for their service. And that includes Jeremy. That includes Frank McLeod that I spoke to. That includes Kai, who I spoke to. Anyone who I spoke to who served, I'm grateful. And even those who I didn't speak to, I'm grateful as well. But again, the, the response to our Omar Cotter coverage has been overwhelmingly positive. So I do want to thank you again if you were a contributor to that initiative. And we're going to do more things like that when there are events worth covering. But in this case, there was basically no one in the media that was prepared to uh, give a, a detailed accounting of what happened. And, and I've actually looked at some of the other coverage that has come out of that event, and it hasn't been all that extensive. Just a few little clips so I'm glad we were there, especially in retrospect. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show.
here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Let's take a little look outside of Canada because the free speech issue, one of the most fundamental issues to Western civilization, certainly one of the issues about which I care more than anything else, and a very positive free speech statement from Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, who continues to be hit or miss, I find. Macron, like sometimes he's really great and other times I find he's just abysmal. On climate, I can't stand him. On free speech, I think he's an all right guy. There was a a situation in France that's been going on in the last uh, little while where a schoolgirl posted an anti-religious diatribe on Instagram. Now, I don't normally cover schoolgirl Instagram footage, but a a young teenager named Mila had uh, basically shot from the hip on religion and it has sparked a great deal of backlash because she was taking aim at Islam. She was taking aim at Islam, and she ended up being forced out of her school and was criticized by France's justice minister, Nicole Belloubet, calling the attack on religion, quote, an attack on freedom of conscience, unquote. Now, this girl has received death threats. She's not been named in full by the press, but I think she's been identified on social media. And the school apparently has had to, like, they needed to find her a new school. The government has had to find her a new school. It's gotten so bad. But this is protected free speech. Blasphemy is protected free speech. So Macron has said something that I think is so essential. Blasphemy, quote, is no crime, unquote. In an interview, he says, quote, In this debate, we've lost sight of the fact that Mila is an adolescent. We owe her protection at school, in her daily life, in her movements, and that he's basically turning back against all of the critics of Mila and saying, "Uh, you guys need to respect that what she's doing is entirely valid within free speech. He says, The necessity is separate from the criticism of religion. The law is clear. We have the right to blaspheme, to criticize, to caricature religions. The Republican order is not a moral order. Bam. I mean, that, that is essential. And it shouldn't need to be said. It shouldn't need to be said that we have the right to blaspheme, to criticize, to caricature religions. But it's more and more true in this day and age that we do. This year marks 15 years since the Danish Muhammad cartoons were published. Cartoons that got people killed, that got assassination attempts to be the norm for political cartoonists, for journalists, for columnists. We obviously have Charlie Hebdo, another situation that has emerged within the last 15 years where people died because they dared criticize a religion. The so-called religion of peace, whose radicals decide to turn around and kill those who mock them. And it's about mocking the radicals. The radicals don't like that they're portrayed as violent and they respond by being violent. And yes, you are in some ways taking your life into your own hands if you speak freely, but it is not the role of the state to say, oh, you've crossed a line. You've been too offensive. And good for Macron for recognizing that. Good for Macron for saying that, because so often anyone who is guilty of wrong speak is subjected to massive victim blaming, where people say, "Oh, well, you shouldn't have said that." I mean, that that you shouldn't. Have, we're about tolerance. We're about freedom. And a, a case that comes to mind is that of Elizabeth Sabadich Wolf. 
And she's not a household name, but she was actually guilty. She was found guilty of speaking out against Islam, even though what she said was true. She spoke about the fact that the Prophet Muhammad had engaged in a sexual relationship with a child. She went to the point of saying Muhammad was a pedophile. But what she did was part of the free critique of religion. People have said vile things about Jesus. People say vile things about Judaism, about Islam. And you may think this is in poor taste. You may think it's in poor form. But it is absolutely permissible in a free society. But Elizabeth Sabadish Wolf was actually convicted by a European human rights court. A European human rights court for the offense of wrong speak. And this was something that, again, should not happen in a free society. You should be able to say, oh man, I don't like how she insults my religion. That's terrible. I'm not uh, going to listen to her or I'm going to fight back against her, but not with violence and certainly not with the arm of the state. So again, I feel absolutely terrible about what's happening to this girl in France, but I am encouraged at least that the French government is not bending the knee, that the French government is saying, you know what, we're going to protect her because the right to speak freely is a fundamental right in a free society, which supposedly there's hope for France still being. When we come back in a moment, a little bit of a tribute to a fallen warrior in the free speech fight, Christy Blatchford. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. Before I close things out from the show today, I want to honor a woman that has had a, a tremendous impact in Canadian politics and Canadian culture and Canadian media. And I'll say an impact in my own life as well. And that is Christy Blatchford. Now, I know that there have been many, many tributes to her and obituaries from people in the last few days since she passed from a cancer battle. And I would encourage you to read some of these. Uh, because some of them are, are truly exceptional and moving. The stories that you hear from her about helping those, even those competitors, younger journalists, sharing sources, sharing information, a woman that genuinely cared about her craft and cared about the story she was covering, and a woman who cared a great deal about all of the people that she covered. Well, I shouldn't say all of the people, but when she was covering crime, the people that were victims of heinous and horrendous crimes. I didn't know Christy Blashford well. I interviewed her a couple of times, and in fact, I will say that I had decided not to interview her anymore because there were two incidents where I had booked her to appear on my show and she forgot and wasn't there, and I was live on air wondering where Christy Blashford was. And in both cases, she had responded. I think in one case, she was walking the dog, and in another case, she just forgot and her moan was on silent. But, you know, these were outliers. <laughs> From everyone else I've talked to, she was incredibly professional on the ball. Uh, oftentimes, if she was covering a trial would be there hours and hours early. And I actually got to know of her through her political writing, which came about in her later years. But I thought that she was so exceptional because of her ability to write and her ability to keep the audience captivated, which was so rare in Canadian media and is so rare in Canadian media. And part of this, I've tried to figure it out. Part of it was that she only covered the stories that she wanted to cover. 
And in a lot of cases, that resulted in a very wide range of content. For example, I knew her as being the trial columnist, and I knew her as being the political columnist. She was the one assigned to cover the Pyeongchang Olympics. She loved the Olympics. She loved sports. She covered the Olympics. She covered other issues. She covered campus politics. She covered Lindsay Shepard's story initially. And she had a, a very wide range, and I've always hated columnists that are one-trick ponies, and broadcasters as well. And that was one of the influences that I had when I started out in radio. I never wanted to be the one that just kept myself confined to a box and only did things within that box. She did what a lot of columnists don't do, which is leaving the studio, which is going to find the story, which is doing original work, which is never being afraid to inject herself into it. And there was a reason that her stuff resonated with people because she understood people because she was writing about the things that she felt and experienced or the things that she knew others around her did. And she always had her finger on the pulse of the people that she covered because she covered a lot of the everyday ordeals and struggles or the stories that were emblematic of these things. And, and she ended up being ahead of the curve on so many of these issues. But I also think what's, in, what's essential to understand about Christy Blatchford is that she was the one they couldn't cancel. She was the one they couldn't cancel. I mean, she was, in some respects, a, a fire-breathing right-winger. That was how people viewed her. And I don't think she was, by the way. I mean, she was more culturally conservative, but she was not a partisan by any stretch. But she was respected by everyone she worked with. I mean, even people she yelled at for messing up her headlines, apparently, still respected her and liked her. And that takes, that takes talent and skill to be loved by the people that you dress down. But she couldn't be canceled because everyone knew where her heart was and everyone knew how talented she was and everyone knew that when she took a story, she was going to bring it to life. And the reason she could do that is because she understood. She understood the core issues that were at the center of what she was writing about. And I, I want to play, before I, I say farewell for this episode, a, a clip from a speech she gave last year at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, George Jonas Freedom Awards Dinner. She was the recipient of the award, and she spoke about justice and the importance of maintaining fairness in the justice system, but she captured something that I had never heard before, which was how victims and victimization transformed for the worse the justice system and how a lot of the victim culture we see now can really come back to some of these changes. And in this, you hear not just her intelligence and her way with words, but also her tremendous wit and the manner in which she communicates and why she was such a powerful columnist for so long. Here's that clip. But in the 80s, there emerged this idea that, as one advocate put it at the time, quote, the politicians long ago recognized the needs of criminals, but they forgot about us. A justice system that doesn't want fair treatment for both sides is not a fair system. Problem is, victims of crime are never meant to be a part or one of the two sides. Justice in this country and in most Western democracies isn't supposed to be a contest between victim and perpetrator, but rather one between state and perpetrator. Thus, it's the state of New York versus Blatchford, or in Canada, Regina versus Blatchford. It's not Blatchford versus the poor SOB she killed. And trust me, I have a list of likely contenders. <laughs> 
Of course, the broader societal interests of public safety and protection incorporate the narrower interests of those who have been hurt or damaged by crime. But traditionally, that's where the victim's role began and ended. And that's as it should be, I think. That's what the rule of law at its simplest is. We all agree that we will not seek vengeance and take the law into our own hands. If you burn down my house, I will not burn down yours in retaliation and perhaps rape your wife for good measure. Instead, I will call the cops, the cops will investigate, and you may be charged, and at some point you may go on trial. But in 1989, the federal government passed the Victim's Bill of Rights, and over the next decade, this being Canada and redundancy always the goal, the provinces passed their own versions. What all these bills really did was provide victims with the right to information about court appearances, release dates of offenders, that sort of thing. But before you knew it, there was also the victim impact statement, which is delivered at sentencing and allows a victim or a victim's family to talk publicly about their loss. What these turned out to be were first steps. In May of 1995 came the trial of the serial killer Paul Bernardo. I suppose if I were truly modern, I wouldn't name him either, but I'm not, so I will. I remember that trial like it was yesterday and could talk about it for weeks. But for these purposes, let me just say that it turned the notion of victims being an uninvolved third party on its ear. Bernardo was accused and of course convicted of genuinely terrible crimes. He was a serial rapist who moved on to murder with his lovely then wife, Carla Homolka, at his side. They were co-stars in the deaths of three young women, Hamolka's own baby sister, Tammy, and teenagers, Lassie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Worse, Bernardo was way ahead of his time. Long before Tarant live-streamed his slaughter in the Christchurch Mosque, well before Luca Magnata made and posted a video of his killing of the student, John Lynn, Bernardo taped his attacks on young girls. It was new, and because it was new, it was especially terrifying. And the first thing that happened was that the trial of Homolka, which went first, was closed to public and to the American press, and subject to so many publication bans, it was essentially held in secret. Then, at Bernardo's trial, the presiding judge, a lovely man named Patrick Lesage, decided at the behest of a lawyer representing the French and Mahaffey families, that the public and the press wouldn't be able to see the videotapes, which were the single most critical piece of evidence against Bernardo. This was because, the lawyer for the family said, if the tapes were played in public, the families would have to watch them too, and because to play them publicly would violate their daughter's dignity and privacy rights. The families, through their lawyer, Tim Danson, asked for formal intervenish status in the trial, and astonishingly, though the judge said he was doing it as an indulgence and not a right, Lesage granted it to them. Victimhood was also expanded in another way at that trial. Because the videotapes were missed by the cops in their search of the Bernardo Homolka marital home, the government determined it needed Homolka as a witness against her former husband. And fair enough, for a time they did need her, and she was more than happy to oblige. Prosecutors duly lined up an array of shrinks to paint her as a victim of Bernardo herself. Why she was a battered spouse? No, she was the compliant victim of a sexual sadist. 
no, no, she had PTSD or traumatic amnesia. Six months before Bernardo's trial started, the tapes were belatedly found in a clusterfuck that is too complicated to explain here. But those tapes showed Homolka not as a victim, but as Bernardo's accomplice, an eager, lip-licking participant in the sexual assaults of those three dead young women and several others, and who on tape seemed as perfectly capable of murder as her darling husband. The tapes showed that Homolka had forgotten about some of the sexual assaults or perhaps lied about them. At least one police chief and one prosecutor wanted to breach her plea deal because of that, but there was no will to do it at 720 Bay Street where the Attorney General's big guns work. There, they had all bought into the vision of Carly Curls, as she called herself, as the victim of a very bad man. In fact, Tomoka was both participant in the early and middle years of her relationship with Bernardo and their rape and murder spree, and then, in its dying days, but only then, so for about five minutes, his victim. Yet her plea deal, 12 years for her involvement in three deaths, survived, and after serving every last day of her sentence, she was free. Many people persist in seeing her as a victim, just another sad example of the toxic male. One of those people was the lawyer who represented her while she was still in prison, a Quebec lawyer who really believed in Homolka's victimhood. Sylvie Bordelais was a true believer. That's a lawyer. Years later, I learned that it was Bordelais' brother, Theory, who married Homolka. And I remember thinking, fine, you like her so much, you have her at your Christmas table every year. <laughs> And she did. And that remains one of the few threads of justice in the Molka story. <laughs> Blatch, you will be missed. That does it for me. Thanks, everyone, for your time in tuning into the show here. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. I'm Andrew Lawton. Thank you. God bless and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.